I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. In the course of one weekend, two major American newsrooms are engulfed in crisis and top editors are forced to resign. At the New York Times, James Bennett, the editor of the editorial page, steps down after a newsroom uproar over an op-ed by Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas that ran under the headline, Send in the Troops. And in Philadelphia, the top editor of the Inquirer, Stan Wisnowski, is booted out over a headline that read, Buildings Matter Too. Both upheavals are unexpected fallouts from the wave of nationwide protests growing out of the killing in Minneapolis of George Floyd and the outrage over police harassment of African Americans. But they also raise profound questions for the media. Is it the responsibility of newspapers to tell all sides of a story and reflect all viewpoints, even when they might offend some readers and some might perceive as furthering an authoritarian agenda? Are newsrooms in danger of censoring unpopular opinions for fear of rousing the woke brigades? We'll discuss with David Folkenflik, the media correspondent for NPR, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. I got to say, when uh, I think it was you who sent me the text message on Sunday that Bennett was out as New York Times editorial page editor, and I was astonished. I, you know, I'd been reading about and following the controversy over that Tom Cotton op-ed, but I never imagined that... It could lead to the resignation of one of the most influential editorial page, if not the most influential editorial page editors in the country. It seemed to me that the offense, if it was an offense for running that op-ed, did not rise to that level, but we are living in very different times uh, than we were uh, just a few months ago. Yeah, I I was shocked. I mean, I think we know James Bennett. He's a low-key, thoughtful, pretty careful guy in in my experience with him. And he's sort of the last person that I would have expected uh, to be, you know, pushed out in this way. But look, we are living, um, you know, not to be grandiose, but sort of in revolutionary times here. And there is a reckoning uh, that's going on. And in times like this, there, there are kind of resettings of standards. Mainstream institutions often find themselves behind the curve. And people are sacri- you know, they lose their jobs. They become um, kind of symbols of this kind of, of change. Yeah. And look, uh, a part of this is 
timing and the news cycle. I, I just remember, we go back to last week. We had um, two podcasts back-to-back with our Hunter Walker, who's been covering the protests in Washington, D.C. And when we did the podcast on Monday, it was right after Sunday night when there was vandalism and looting and rioting in Washington, D.C. The protests had gotten out of hand and, uh, you know, stores were broken into. There was a fire at that church. There was legitimate reason to be concerned that these protests uh, were going too far, despite the fact that they arose from very legitimate grievances. But then Monday night, the park police clear out those peaceful protesters from Lafayette Park and the conversation changes from protests out of hand to military style crackdowns on the right to dissent. And I just wonder, you know, I'm sure Cotton wrote his op ed thinking just about what had gone on Sunday night in Washington, D.C., and many other cities across the country. But when people saw the images, the graphic images of the impact of, you know, the equivalent of sending in the troops, which is what uh, Bill Barr ordered to take place, they had a different viewpoint. Look, things are very raw out there. People are very angry, and they are very angry uh, for good reason. But we also are in a period of really intense polarization, and these are times when um, there's just not a lot of tolerance for hearing other perspectives when the stakes are so high, there is so much pain and suffering out there. And, um, you know, that's, it's just a time when people aren't going to say, OK, well, let's just uh, hear what the other side has to say. I think that the danger is I, I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, I grew up in the 70s. I remember I'm the, the son of, uh, of, a, of a Holocaust survivor. But I remember that sometime in the mid 70s, the Nazis marching in Skokie, Illinois, and in our household, as offensive as neo-Nazis were marching in a, in a uh, Midwestern town, the ACLU believed in its right to defend that kind of expression, as, as abhorrent as it was. And, uh, you know, the New York Times is a major, really important institution in this, in this country, and it has been a paragon of free speech and the First Amendment. And so uh, I think the, the danger is that we go too far and that we really chill speech in this country. And one last thing I want to say about this, which I think is important, is, you know, when you talk about just reflecting the other side, well, you know, Donald Trump has moved the kind of goalposts so far in the other direction. It's become so extremist now that just to say, let's let the other side have its say, you get into dangerous territory. And you can, and I'm not saying this is the case here, but you would could easily find yourself in territory where speech is also incitement to violence. Yeah, I, I was just going to you know, make a similar point that uh, in some ways this is a reflection of how uh, Donald Trump has driven everybody crazy, including his critics, and prompted them to do things that in other contexts we would find quite offensive. And in my view, that's you know, censoring opinions and saying some views are verboten and not fit for public comment. I mean, look, clearly when it's you know, racist viewpoints, when it's anti-Semitic, when 
when it's offensive towards women. I mean, I you know, one can understand that. But Cotton, that's not the way I read Cotton's column. He was making a provocative, controversial, and to many, you know, objectionable point. But I don't think it was beyond the bounds of uh, discourse to read it and hear from it. But let's hear what our uh, media expert, David Folkenflick, has to say on this. He's one of the uh, shrewdest observers and reporters on events in the media. So uh, let's get to the show. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us David Folkenflick, the media correspondent for NPR and the host of On Point, an NPR show on the media. David, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, great to join you guys again. So quite a few days in the media world, the resignation of James Bennett, the New York Times editorial page editor, and uh, Stan Wisnowski, the executive editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, both basically forced out, it seems, because of controversial headlines and in uh, Mr. Bennett's case at the New York Times, an op-ed that ran under one of those headlines from Tom Cotton, the uh, Republican senator of Arkansas. This seems to us pretty extraordinary. I can't remember two high-level resignations coming back to back over pretty similar issues. What do you make of them? Yeah, it's quite a week we're having, or excuse me, it's quite a year we're having this week. It does seem like a moment. It's a moment where these prominent newsrooms are grappling in a different way with some of the same issues that we're seeing play out at so many of these protests at cities and communities across the country. Our black lives, our black sensibilities being taken as seriously as those of their white counterparts. Are we thinking intently about the choices we're making editorially as journalists and about not only the good and use that they can have and serve, but the harm that they can do. These are the kinds of questions I'm hearing from African-American journalists in those newsrooms and others, including my own. I think that uh, what you're seeing is journalistic judgments being called into question, not simply about whether or not they were the right calls, but whether they reflect a blindness or a deafness to the way life is lived for people who aren't white and who aren't at the top echelons, the top elite positions running these institutions. And I think, you know, there's been a kind of resentment burbling for a while, for for decades, probably as long as there have been African-Americans in newsrooms, but about issues very closely related to the ones we've seen play out. And some of them have to do with who gets to decide what gets covered and who gets to decide how the things that do get covered get covered. And that may seem, well, you know, that's journalism. And that's true. James Bennett ran this piece called Send in the Troops by Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton, you know, a a guy with sort of a, I think it's fair to say, a bit of an authoritarian streak when it comes to what he would characterize as law and order. He wanted 
the president to invoke a little known and little used statute to send in military troops, even if over the objection of governors and mayors, to quell civil unrest. He framed it as going after just looters and seemingly drawing distinctions between looters and protesters. But as we know, sometimes in mass protests, episodes of violence occur that don't involve the vast majority of protesters. And yet if you're militarizing those interactions between protesters and, and, and looters and law enforcement, those distinctions are going to get lost. But David, isn't it that this is the editorial page of the New York Times, and isn't it one mission of editorial pages to reflect a diversity of viewpoints, not just ones that stroke the sensibilities of, of the majority of readers, but viewpoints that challenge them? And it seems to me that's what Basically, the Times was doing here running a piece by a, a sitting United States senator that reflected a viewpoint of many in the White House, many at the highest levels of the U.S. government. And, you know, shouldn't readers want to be exposed and understand what that viewpoint is? Well, you've hit on something very interesting. I don't think anything I've said necessarily means that there isn't a rationale to running it. But I'm describing what journalists themselves are feeling and their reaction to it. I think part of it is generational. I think people under the age of 40, under the age of 38, feel a bit differently than people who have been in uh, newsrooms for decades. I think some of it reflects you know, a racial divide in terms of the experience of how life is lived. That is not uniform in either direction. And I do think that, you know, part of the original mandate of the Times opinion page, which really helped introduce that phenomenon to American print journalism, was, look, we have editorials that reflect the opinion of our owners, or at least as they're reflected by the people they designate to write an official editorial position by the newspaper. But we are going to expand the range of opinions presented to our readers as a way of fostering debate. Embracing the marketplace of ideas, which doesn't say that an idea just dominates. It says that ideas are tested by often contrary thinking. And the Times editorial stance itself is very much against the idea of militarizing the law enforcement response to figuring out how to handle this, this wave of protest and at times eruption of violence in, in, in looting and, and, and vandalism and, and, and rioting. But all of this is true. And James Bennett was an interesting and sometimes controversial figure. He came to the from the Atlantic four years ago to the Times and I think did a, an impressive job of expanding the range of opinions presented by the Times, both on the right and on the left, with some really disparate and interesting thinkers as they broadly expanded the number of folks who they published online. But you hit on a really interesting point. You said, shouldn't readers want this? Well, readers are now much more than ever in the driver's seat at the New York Times, and this is, is increasingly true at other publications. As advertising withers, right, paying subscribers are increasingly important to newspapers. I can't underscore this enough. And digital subscriptions for the Times have proved stratospheric. They have never had, despite what you hear from the president, never had more subscribers in its existence since 1851 when the Times was founded. And digital subscriptions has really propelled that. It is a way to add readers at very minimal cost. And what the readership expects is increasingly important to what people who are running the news reports and the editorial sections 
decide to do. Because if you lose those digital subscribers, you lose the ability to keep adding journalists. I mean, they now have something like 1,700 journalists, more than ever before at the Times, at a time when newspapers generally are, you know, are watching their finances go around the drain. So the readers are actually very important, and their expectation of what the Times is may be a little different than what you've said. Tom Cotton is not just conservative. Tom Cotton is saying your sons and daughters, your friends and neighbors, you people who pay to read us, we're saying we want somebody with bayonets putting down anything that strays over the line. And lawlessness, by the way, sometimes involves mass protests without permits in public streets. But David, I mean, you, you talk about readers more than ever being in the driver's seat, but I think you could also argue to some extent that reporters inside the newsroom more than ever are in the driver's seat, if you look at this particular case and others out there. And, you know, I think it is the case that social change is often driven by younger people and driven by generational changes. And I wonder if in this particular case, you know, what it reflects about what's going on more generally in newsrooms out there. I mean, you have a new generation of reporters kind of fueled and liberated by social media. You have the excesses, of course, of the Trump administration. And in some ways, a a rethinking or even a discarding of kind of traditional standards and conventions that we've all relied on in journalism, you know, striving for a kind of a pure objectivity, uh, balance reflecting both sides, both sidism becoming a bad word these days, in favor of a different kind of notion of truth, which is closer to the idea of taking moral stances in some cases. So is this something that uh, you're seeing in newsrooms around the country? And is this a kind of a reckoning uh, that is taking place right now? Let me disentangle some of the important things that you're talking about here, because I think you're on to something. I would characterize it a little differently. I would say we move from this notion of impartiality, of objectivity, you know, a Dewey and progressive notion of about a century ago, right, to one, I wouldn't call it to truth, I would call it to fairness. And the idea is to be fair to your readers, to be fair to you, particularly the people and subjects you're writing about, the communities you're rooted in, and also to the facts and the truth. And that was the idea of fairness was a way of getting out of the pit of saying, well, you know, we said, candidate X said this, We said candidate Y said that. Candidate X was actually making slanderous claims that are ungrounded in fact and unsupported by evidence, but we've presented both sides. That is actually a journalistic failing that is both lazy and not, you know, what is the point of what we're doing? I always feel like the point of what we're doing ultimately is to enable people to act not just as consumers of news, but as citizens. So they have the, I don't need to tell somebody what to vote or how to vote or what to think, but I want somebody to have the information and the context so they can make up their own minds about what's going to best serve them, their families, their communities, their nation, right? And I think fairness was a way of getting at that. Now there is, I think, among some journalists, particularly, but not only younger journalists, an idea of even that is a fool's game when you are reporting in an asymmetrical age. The asymmetricality has a lot to do, but not only to do with partisan politics, that is the Republican Party and the Democratic Party play by different rules when it comes to journalism, when it comes to facts, and it comes to the respect it does or doesn't afford journalists and the role they play in, in the political cycle. There are certainly extreme figures and, and, and unscrupulous figures on the left as well uh, and online. But there's a way in which people are saying, you know what, let's just get to the truth. Let's just get to what is moral and what is true. And what is moral 
and what is professionally ethical are at times different. And, you know, you can be amoral and still ethical. You can tell a story without saying this is wrong, but you can present the facts in a way that allow people to get there. And there's a tension. You know, I value opinion journalism. It can be done well from the right and the left, but it's got to be fair to the facts. Well, there are other people who say, you know, we have to be clear on morality here. And there are people at, you know, newsroom editorial pages genuinely are run separately from newsrooms, from the reporting wing of newsrooms, as you guys both know, in conventional legacy news outlets. And yet people at the Times and people at the Philadelphia Inquirer say, this is representing my brand. This is representing who I am publicly, and it's not in keeping with where I'm at. Yes, there should be dissonant voices. Yes, there should be con arguments pro and con. Yes, there should be a vast array of things debated, but certain things shouldn't be uh, amplified by the New York Times and given credence and credibility. They should be covered perhaps in the news pages, but as the clear violation of civil liberties that they represent or whatever they have. Again, I think that there's a real case to be made for what Bennett did. He has, I mean, he has harbored the aspiration for his time at, at the New York Times of ultimately taking over for Dean Baquet as the editor-in-chief, we called the executive editor there, and leading the newsroom. And he has seriously misread the newsroom on a number of occasions. Whatever the merits of his decisions, you have to be able to lead in those positions, maybe bring people along to a place they didn't initially want to go. And he has failed on a number of cases to do that. Uh, well, he, uh, A.G. Salzberg, the publisher, backed him a couple of times. Let me just say, you know, finally said, you know, there was a lapse in editorial uh, decision-making here, and not for the first time. I think the Salzburgers have spent a little too much time explaining why what James Bennett did was right to their own staffers, th to the point where they ultimately felt this was a liability. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't helpful to his cause, I don't think here, that he did not read the piece, which he ultimately acknowledged. And an editor of a section that produces a large amount of copy may not read every piece, but it is his or her responsibility to make sure that those pieces that are going to be very provocative and controversial, they read. Sure. And look, you know, again, I kind of admired some of the things Bennett was doing. I think that it was a more dissonant, more interesting editorial page than the one he inherited. But in this moment, I think you're seeing in real time playing out in front of us, journalists hashing out what's accepted and what's interesting in part because social media affords more junior reporters and more rank and file uh, journalists the ability to speak out publicly and to commune and share with one another where they're coming from. Simply because somebody has said this is the right decision doesn't mean that's accepted in the same way it once was, uh, but, e even reluctantly. And I think David, this means that that it's more like almost like a college faculty at times. Yeah, David, David let's talk about what actually happened at the Times, because uh, I think you alluded to this before. Salzberger, the publisher, at first defended Bennett and defended the decision to run the op-ed. And then there's this extraordinary blowback from the newsroom and reporters and editors are complaining and um, raising their objections to it. And Salzberger reverses himself. I mean, it, it seems a little like a mutiny of, of, a, of a sort in which, you know, the rank and file got to dictate to the brass what they should do. And I'm just, I, you know, you're first and foremost a reporter on these things. Give us some insight into how that reversal by Sulzberger came about. 
My understanding is that he didn't know originally that Bennett hadn't read it and that ultimately he concluded or said he concluded that the process to get it on line was a little flapdash. This was initially scheduled to run in the Sunday paper. You know, the review section is published in advance of Sunday, but they didn't have to get it up Wednesday at the time they did. They could have taken a little more time with that to vet it out. The fact that some of his assertions were challenged on a factual basis by reporters enabled a grapple hold for critics to try to tear it down. Let me just say this. I thought Rich Lowry had a very interesting piece in the back and forth, and we've all read columns in the New York Times and elsewhere that you know make bold assertions that aren't perfectly or even particularly well backed up by facts. So yeah, I, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, one of the factual assertions that the editors note that they appended to it challenged was that cadres of left wing radicals like Antifa were contributing to the violence. Now, that has not been substantiated. It's been asserted by the attorney general of the United States and others in the U.S. government. But as an assertion in an op ed, it does not strike me as it, it hasn't been debunked either. And I was going to say, as an assertion in an op-ed, it doesn't strike me as really much beyond what you could read in op-eds in the New York Times across the board every day by their columnists and others. There are assertions made. I mean, as you read the cotton piece, let's take away the headline, the crudity of the and jarring nature of the headline. Did you find it objectionable on its face and something you would not have run if you were in James Bennett's shoes? Such a good question. Uh, Long pause. I'll, I'll, I'll note for the record. Yeah. Hulk and flick, you know, yeah. Bracket, real long pause, unbracket, <laughs> yeah. you know? I think that's how the transcript reads there. Right. I would, you know, here's what I'd say. I, I tend towards wanting to ventilate arguments. People are able to knock down his arguments by reading it closely. I do think that, you know, the Times mistakes itself if it thinks that good news coverage of something, setting it out fairly, but also setting out legal and moral and other ob- objections and, and challenges to it, doesn't accomplish the job as well. I did note, you know, some Michael Powell, not known as a a reactionary commentator for the Times and not a right winger, uh, now laboring in sports, previously a a columnist in the news side. You know, he said this was an embarrassing retreat from principle when the Times effectively apologized and regretted the publication. That said, C.J. Shivers, a former war correspondent for the Times, a former I guess currently an investigative reporter for the Times, who's himself a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, said the decision to publish this was wrong on its face and talked about what he's seen abroad when protesters face not domestic police, but military forces trying to keep control of circumstances and how that heightens tension. And, you know, he, too, talked about what journalists have faced and what I've you know, reported on fairly extensively as well, the kinds of hostility and at times violence that journalists have faced at the hands of police officers and law enforcement officials across the country in these recent weeks. Beyond the pale, you know, in the U.S., uh, it's often considered beyond the pale to include, for example, people from Hamas or leaders from Hamas in talking about what how you would deal with trying to come up with some sort of long-term peace surrounding Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East, right? 
in Israel, newspapers are much more likely to publish those things. Yeah. That's within the accepted bounds of discourse. You know, so I think these things are very fluid. What we saw as impartiality was in some ways as a result of market forces. It was useful for newspapers as the number of newspapers dwindled in major cities across the country to appeal not to strong niches like cable news does now, but more blandly to a broader part of the population. So that's how impartiality was embraced by newspapers, and it became a journalistic ethic. It became a matter of principle, but it was really driven by market forces. You don't have to be a Marxist to see that, right? So, you know, the things that we take as points of absolute morality and principle in our profession often evolve over time from forces that are actually apart from that. So I think that whether or not you think what Bennett did was right, uh, there clearly was strong reaction from their readership. But in this case, the readership that, that undermined him was inside the newsroom across the way uh, on the news side of the divide there. And that was a problem for Salzberger. And I think that right now journalists are raw. And I think that they are – it's more like the 70s to me. You know, People have talked about this being 68, but it feels to me like the 70s where people are like, are we inventing new forms of narrative? Are we inventing new forms of what ethics mean, what it means to be an ethical journalist? And sometimes that can lead very positive results, and sometimes it can re- lead to chaos because it's not clear where the lines are drawn right now. And I think you've seen that you know, at the Washington Post where Ben Smith had a great column in The Times about how Marty Barron, perhaps the best newspaper editor in the country right now, nonetheless has a sort of rigid control over what's appropriate for people to say on social media. It drives out some of their very talented people and it also causes great confusion because the editors don't always know what principles they're applying other than trying to shut people up. You know, David, when you mentioned uh, Israel, uh, I had been thinking the same thing. I was based there and was always struck by the vigorous debate in the newspapers and the kind of, you know, basically a, a battle of ideas. And it seems to me, I guess one of the questions coming out of this episode at the Times and, and, and the other ones is that there's a danger of a chilling effect, that these op-ed pages ought to be forums for vigorous uh, debate in, in our society. And I remember years ago, as a young journalist, I worked for the Washington Post editorial page for the late, great Meg Greenfield. And I think one of the things that, that she used to do, part of the problem is you run a piece like the Cotton piece, there's no context. You know, all you have is a piece that's very provocative that is very prominent. It's the op-ed page of the New York Times. She used to run kind of point-counterpoints when there was a, a, a more provocative piece of that sort. So I kind of wonder, like, because I think it would be a kind of a sad thing if, if uh, opinion editors were no longer willing to run provocative pieces. So what are the kind of prescriptive things that you can do to continue running those kinds of pieces, but avoid some of the pitfalls that uh, has, you know, led to Bennett's being pushed out. And I guess the question is, are you worried about a chilling effect as a result of uh, these kinds of decisions? You know, Barry Weiss, who's a conservative, something of a contrarian at the Times, was hired as an editor and soon became a writer, you know, under her own name, has basically characterized this as uh, tensions between the, the woke Younguns and the uh, more classically liberal 40 and 50 somethings at the Times. And she attributes this to a kind of, uh, yeah, a smothering correctness that she attributes to college campuses. Now, I can tell you, having been a former higher education reporter, college campuses are glamorous places where people debate and rage at each other all the time. There may well be a left of centerism, but it's 
you know, there are a lot of conservative voices there too, and a lot of a lot of clashes there. You know, it's really a question of how the Times conceives of itself. Is it for liberal America? Is it for all America? You know, back in the day, they used to have basically one conservative voice in William Sapphire, right? And he, I thought he was enormously engaging in reading and would do some reporting. Mm-hmm. It was, was, was great. But, you know, he was pretty alone there for a long time. And under Bennett, they've tried to increase that. To be honest, under his predecessor, they tried to increase that. But there's always been this sort of wink. Jill Abramson once said to me, you know, we're not a liberal paper, but we're a cosmopolitan paper. Uh, that understands the sensibility of the Upper West Side. And, you know, so they wanted elites, they wanted bankers uh, and advertising type people. And they also wanted people who kind of aspired to the kind of life reflected in the pages of the New York Times and the issues, uh, uh, interested in the issues written there. And so there's this kind of wink. And these days, I think it's hazier than ever. You know, the Times, I think, uh, stumbles over itself not to be too explicit in going after President Trump and characterizing it. I think the Washington Post at times is harder hitting in its things about calling things racist, calling things lies rather than uh, evasions. And yet in terms of social media, it, it is much more rigid about what it lets people do and how voiced it lets people be. And you're just seeing two different models of, a, of an approach there, each with its own problems. I do think that you know good news organizations allow the ventilation of a lot of uh, different kinds of ideas from a lot of different perspectives. I do think that under Fred Hyatt and the Greenfield successor at the Washington Post, I think that is a very careful centrist editorial stance, but also by and large, a fairly establishment editorial page as well, or opinion page as well. Like I don't see an incredible array of wild leftists and incredibly hardline right wingers there, right? Like it seems to me to be pulling people gravitationally towards uh, what it views as a reasonable center. No, 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 I, I agree with you 100% on, on uh, the way that Fred Hyatt writes. Although, you know, he did, uh, I think, get a lot of criticism from the left for being a neocon I, I, or, or for that, for those pages to reflect the views of neoconservatives, which I think was unfair. So, I mean, even if you push toward the center, you're going to, in some ways, you're going to get, you're going to get, you may get hit even harder by both sides. Let's talk about, just for a moment, as we wrap up here, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, because there the offense was running a piece under the headline, Buildings Matter Too. And look, the point, leave aside the headline for the moment, which you know may not have been the most sensitive headline writing um, there was. I mean, the point of the piece was there was indeed violence, especially those first few nights during these protests. Uh, to say that is not in any way to take away from the fact that there was legitimate outrage over what happened to George Floyd and legitimate outrage over the way African-Americans have been targeted by police. But there were I mean, I live we, I live in Washington that the, on Sunday night a week ago, you know, there was a burning of a nursery at St. John's Church. There were stores broken into not far from my home and looting that took place. And I guess the concern is when the executive editor of the paper gets booted out over a perhaps infelicitous headline, the concern is that reporting Core facts such as, yes, there have been violence at some of these protests, you know, becomes expendable, that 
perhaps that doesn't get reported because people are too intimidated about offending the woke brigade. So look, this is a totally reasonable issue for people to cover. The idea that you can't cover the beyond vandalism, at times destruction of property, the idea that businesses and communities have no stake in the question of whether storefronts are shattered and inventory looted is wrong. It has to matter. It has to be covered. It's part of the community. And you see that not only from columnists in the Philadelphia Inquirer or stayed pillars of the establishment, but also some of the protesters themselves, people who have fought for years to build up their communities, to establish strong foundations on which to construct a strength, particularly for people of color, particularly for people in working class communities and neighborhoods often ignored by politicians. They understand that the destruction of property and the, the hitting of businesses can have a real repercussion and, and last and endure. And we saw that in cities across the country in you know, more severe and sustained rioting in, you know, say, 1968 after the killings of uh, killing of Martin Luther King, for example, and other places. So this and other incidents, I should say. So this is an important thing. The headline did suggest in the minds of reporters in the Inquirer that somehow the paper was equating the destruction of property, to the loss of life. But usually editors don't lose their jobs over a single mistake. Ben Bradley, you know, fortified by Watergate, no doubt, didn't lose his job over Jimmy's World, in which Janet Cook invented, you know, a, 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 a youth, a tiny, you know, I think he's supposed to be seven years old or something, who was a heroin addict and built a huge uh, project around this fictional person that won a Pulitzer that had to be returned about as big as a global embarrassment as a newspaper can get into. Bradley had reservoir of goodwill. Bradley had a, a re, you know, a record to stand on. And Bradley was also incredibly forthright about returning the thing and, and being contrite, even though his top leaders had essentially warned some, or ignored some warning signs that had been set off by some of the uh, editors who had interacted with her on the project. So I think that in this case, the question is, is this just some sort of French revolution where people are being taken out to the guillotine or are, you know, in individual circumstances, did people not have effectively the political capital, and I don't mean ideological, but the, the goodwill, reservoirs of goodwill and trust within their newsrooms to survive the, these controversies on this subject. And at a certain point, even beyond the merit, if you can't lead your newsrooms, it's not going to be useful for you to do it. That's different than saying that you should be fired or forced out over a single, uh, a single mistake. Uh, the publisher in Philadelphia said that she wanted to set the inquirer on a new course rethink the way in which the newspaper dealt with issues of race in light of the convulsions that the nation's been going through for the past you know, weeks, and that probably uh, this editor wouldn't be, you know, a, a white male in his uh, late 50s, I believe, wouldn't be the best one to lead the paper at this time. Well, I was going to say it is also the case with James Bennett, who is Otherwise, an, an excellent journalist, did a terrific job editing the Atlantic magazine and did a lot of good things at the Times magazine. But over the course of his 
years as editorial page editor at the Times, there were a number of mistakes. There was the Sarah Palin defamation lawsuit. Uh, There were a couple of columns by Brett Stevens that were controversial. So he may not have had the kind of, certainly didn't have the kind of capital that a Ben Bradley had. And I think that probably is part of the story here. Sure. I just think there's, you know, a lot of this is generational and journalists instead of things evolving over time at uh, you know, panel discussions at schools of journalism and public policy are sort of arguing these things out in Slack channels, on text and on social media in real time. And, you know, I covered a story in Pittsburgh this week about a black reporter who was sidelined for a tweet she did that sort of was flippant about the effect of looting in Pittsburgh comparing it to the aftermath of tailgating parties that kind of trashed the area around Kenny Chesney concerts in Pittsburgh. And she was told by editors she couldn't cover the protests because she had shown her hand. Now, it turns out she's the daughter of a retired state trooper and a retired probation officer. So it's hard to make the prima facie case that obviously she's pro-looting and anti-law enforcement. But she's one of the very, you know, she's one of a relatively small number of African-American journalists at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. She was sidelined. The same day, a white reporter was cautioned about a tweet he sent out calling a man accused of looting by police. He sent out a tweet tagging the story he wrote about this in which he called the man who had been accused a scumbag. And his editor said, don't do that. We don't think that's appropriate. But he was not pulled back from covering issues relating to protests and violence and and, and vandalism and the like. And two days later, the union pointed out this disparity, saying a white journalist was cautioned but not punished. A black journalist was preventing, prevented from covering issues about race and justice in her hometown of Pittsburgh. And then what the newspaper decided to do was to prevent the white reporter from covering the protest, too, minutes after the union left the meeting with top editors. So you're seeing, you know, that's an instance in which you know, these two journalists, 127, 128, both of them from Pittsburgh, both of them felt free to sort of maybe show a little bit of where their heads are at at a moment in a way that before social media they couldn't do. But a reporter who had done so saying basically, hey, there are times where people do violence and y'all don't get that upset about it. Let's at least think about it. She was sidelined and remained sidelined a week later. And, I, you know, I think that newsrooms are that newsroom is in tumult as a result of this episode as well. And newsrooms are kind of grappling with this issue and the leaders don't have control of the narrative, I think is what I take from this rather than right or wrong is that leaders don't have control of it. Social media is giving an outlet for journalists in the rank and file to speak out and to find support. And uh, I think it's very unsettling for those who seek to run these major institutions at this time. Well, it does sound like uh, newsrooms across the board are uh, engulfed in tumult. Uh, although I should probably say it's it's virtual tumult, uh, since you know most people actually aren't in, in newsrooms these days. And it does make me wonder if that's a factor here. <laughs> that fact is that nobody is actually sitting next to each other anymore, talking these things out, but just hurling bromides uh, as we are all wont to do on social media might be contributing to it. But David. I really want to thank you for your always helpful insights. And it sounds like you'll have lots of meaty issues to talk about on your next On Point. God knows. Thank you, gentlemen. Always a pleasure to join you. 
Thanks to NPR media correspondent and host of NPR's On Point, David Falkenflick, for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.